Because so many people have been led down the path and manipulated with the word yes. Would you like to make more money? Would you like to get discounts on everything you buy? Would you like to get your medications at 10% off? You know, some, that, that, that's a classic pitch for, you know, taking training to be a keynote speaker. Would you like to travel the world for free and stay in five-star hotels? Like these obvious yeses. Do you like clean water? Do you believe in freedom? That people are always going someplace with that. And when we were young and innocent and naive, we'd say, yeah. I don't know anybody that hasn't been flim-flammed with yes. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Chris Voss. Chris is a former lead FBI negotiator and dynamic speaker who debunks the biggest myths of negotiation. Chris engages all groups with captivating stories, insights, and useful tips for business and everyday life. Chris has lectured on negotiation at business schools across the country and has been seen on ABC, CBS, CNN, and Fox News. Chris's keynotes are based on his highly popular book, Never Split the Difference. Today on the show, we discuss how to become a more effective communicator both in person and online, how to better understand the person you're communicating with, how to help persuade someone you love make better decisions for their life, how to get comfortable with rejection, how to remain calm during an emotionally intense situation, why learning to effectively listen to somebody and develop tactical empathy will help you get what you want in life and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Chris Voss to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man, I'm happy to be here. Th thanks for having me on. I'm happy to have you on as well. I want to start with a quote that I heard in your book that I think can often be viewed as contrarian when it comes to negotiating. I think it'd be a great place for us to start. And it says, if your biggest fear is no, you can't negotiate. Why should people not be afraid of being of the word no when it comes to conflict resolution and, 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 uh, and negotiating? Yeah, not only not be afraid of it, uh, embrace it. So it's, it's context. Like every word is context. And yes is not success. I mean, yes is counterfeit, vast majority of the time. But the issue is not how it feels when it hears, when you hear it, the issue is how does it feel to say it? And when somebody says no, they feel safe. They feel protected. Like when, when my son was 17, he'd be dead, can I? I'd be like, no, before I even knew what it was. But then, having said no, I was willing to hear him out. And I can remember time after time, I go like, no. And then I think for a second, I go, okay, now, now what was it that you wanted? And I'd hear him out. And if it was reasonable, I'd, I'd go along with it. So, you know, no is not failure. Yes is not success. And no is not failure. No to say is to feel safe and protected time after time after time. So if you understand what it means to say something to the other side, then you understand how you can make them feel comfortable with you, how you can make them be open to collaboration. And getting somebody to say no is one of the first ways to get them to be open to collaboration because they feel safe and protected. And so 
I know a big part of your work and what you teach people is to develop this idea of tactical empathy when you're talking to people and be able to understand the side of, of somebody else. I would imagine that also takes like a lot of emotional intelligence to be able to, to do that when you are approaching a situation and doesn't just come like naturally. How can somebody like develop the intelligence and the self-awareness around a situation to be able to further understand like the person that they're, they're communicating with? Yeah, well, nothing comes naturally. I mean, you know, the good news is nothing comes naturally, which means, you know, you can you can learn. Like a line in Denzel Washington movie, there's only trained and untrained. You know, you can learn it. And your capacity for EQ, emotional intelligence, far exceeds your ability to increase your IQ. Like, I know there's an argument out there that, you know, you could you could work on getting smarter, your IQ if you will, in the old, in the old way of defining it, but it's kind of like your height, that, that particular measure of intelligence is limited. You're only going to get so tall. Your emotional intelligence, you read for people is just darn near unlimited. It's only limited by your ability to stay alive pretty much and to stay healthy. So yeah, you can, you can learn it. If you start the the first thing to learn it is really start listening to your gut versus listening to your amygdala, you know, your fear centers. When we're teaching uh, negotiation, coaching, training constantly, you know, my company, Black Swan Group, I'm not the only coach. I'm not even our best coach. But one of the challenges we say, you know, learn to listen to your gut, not your amygdala, because your gut is really, really accurate and gets more accurate all the time. If you just listen to it, your amygdala wants to deny your gut. And so what's an example? We tell people, deactivate the negative thinking of the other side. How do I know what they're thinking? Ask yourself what they would, what you want them to deny. Like you want to say, look, I don't want you to think I'm being stingy or I don't want you, I don't want to sound disrespectful. You know, the, the classic line, I don't want to sound disrespectful. And then the very next thing is something very disrespectful. Well, so your gut is triggering properly that what you're getting ready to say is going to be disrespectful. Now, how do you go from being blunt to being a straight shooter? Because everybody loves straight shooters. Straight shooters tell the truth. They just tell it in a gentle way. So the straight shooter would say, look, I'm, I'm going to sound disrespectful. And then what we, you know, the collective we, um, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I study the neuroscience stuff on a regular basis. The emotional pain centers and the physical pain centers in the brain are pretty close together, react pretty much the same way. Physical pain, if you warn somebody physical pain's coming, they're like, all right, they brace themselves, bring it, and they can handle it. If you say, look, this ain't going to hurt at all, and you hurt them, they're angry. But if you say, look, this is going to hurt, and you hurt them, they go like, ah, that wasn't that bad. Your doctor says, look, he gets ready to hit you with a jab you with that knee. I says, it's going to hurt. All right, bring it. And so you're ready. Well, emotional pain's the same thing. Look, this is going to sound disrespectful. You go, all right, bring it. And then afterwards, the person that, on the receiving end goes, that ah, wasn't that bad. Thanks for being a straight shooter. That's how you make the two millimeter shift from being someone who has no emotional intelligence to somebody who has tons of it. Just call it out. Don't deny it. How have you been able to harness your experience and knowledge as somebody that was a hostage negotiator in, in, in high-level crisis situations to your personal relationships, whether that be romantically or even with your, with your kids or your family, to make sure that you're using what you know about negotiation to kind of move the situation in a 
forward in a positive way, but not coming across like too blunt or harsh because it's not necessarily a life or death situation like you've been used to. Yeah, or even manipulative. I mean, uh, the the hostage negotiation stuff was really kind of in the middle. So before I became a hostage negotiator, you know, I was told I had to volunteer on a suicide hotline. So I volunteer on this crisis hotline in New York City. And what was it? It was the application of empathy, you know, emotional intelligence. And the crazy thing about being on that hotline was they said, you're going to, you know, you got 20 minutes per call max. And I remember thinking like, wait a minute, <laughs> emotionally charged discussions going for hours, if not days, how are we going to do this in 20 minutes? And they said, no, actually, if you're doing it right, it'll, 20 minutes is a long time. You'll be done sooner than that. And so I'm on a suicide hotline, crisis hotline, applying empathy and just soaking up emotions, getting people to change their behavior in their mind in 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes. And I'm thinking like, is this just a hotline or is this everyday life? So I start applying it in everyday life. By the time I got to hostage negotiation, about a year and a half later, like I'd already been doing it for a while and I knew it worked. You know, I, I used it at the Chase Manhattan Bank with bank robbers. And so then as I'm getting ready to come out the other end, I'm like, let me take this back into regular life because people make decisions, regardless of the severity of the consequences, human beings pretty much decide along some of the same lines regardless. How does this affect my vision of who I am? How does this affect my future? my identity, my affiliations. Everybody's everybody's doing that on a regular basis, no matter what the circumstances. So the hostage negotiation was really the middle ground. I just brought it back out now and apply it in, in regular life. And I do it with my family and, and, and my colleagues. Like in a Black Swan group, we negotiate with each other all the time, constantly, because it's not that you're negotiating. It's whether or not you're trying to collaborate with somebody or whether or not you're trying to cut their throat. And we collaborate. So I do it with my family. I do it with my, my, my son. I was on the phone with my son, Brandon, who's a brilliant negotiator earlier today. And, and we happily use this stuff with each other because we like working together. You mentioned that your career you know, started really in this mental health crisis, crisis situation when you're on the phone with people that are um, not in a good place mentally. And I have a lot of parents who listen to my podcast who have kids or have family members that are struggling with like addiction and they're trying to get them to stop doing something that's damaging their life. And a lot of times it's, it's very challenging because there's so many, it's such, such, it's such a nuanced situation based on all of your experience, any tips for parents to try to communicate with their kids to, uh, I mean, negotiate with them to, to not do things like that. Yeah. Well, the, the best you can do for them is make them feel understood, not judged, not guided. You know, they, they, they got no shortage of advice. The real issue for them is settling out the emotions that they're struggling with at the time. Now, sometimes the best you can do is still a long shot. So it doesn't work every time. It just works better than anything else does. You know, your, your child, if they're going into counseling, counselors trying to make them feel understood before they're giving them advice. So you as a, as a, as a parent, you know, you're trying to give them advice because you see the path, you know, you see the error of their ways. You see how they're hurting themselves. I mean, you can't stand it. It's hurting you. It's tearing you up inside. 
and you want them to stop. And the bad news is giving them guidance is not what they need. Being made to feel understood is what they need. They need some hard boundaries. And parents have a tendency to, in, in order to try to help, maybe not set hard boundaries. Set your hard boundaries. Don't set them in a harsh way. You can set a hard boundary without being harsh. Bob Manukin wrote this book called uh, Beyond Winning. Bob was uh, head of negotiation program at Harvard. And the second chapter is the tension between empathy and assertiveness. Tension between them. And I remember reading that chapter, reading the title, thinking like, what's this about? Because I don't think there's a tension there. I think you could do both. And I'm reading the chapter and I realize that by and large, I think, you know, that was a clickbait chapter. What's this about? And you read it and Bob says, there's no tension. There's a sequence. Before you tell people what to do, you got to use empathy and make them feel understood. They're more likely to be open to be told what to do. So it's not a tension between the two. It's a sequencing. What does that mean for you as a parent? Best you could do is use empathy, set hard boundaries, and that's the best you could do. And and in the long run, I don't know how long that long run's going to be. It ain't going to be short enough for you. That's the best you could do for them. It's so true because it's not an easy situation, but I think that there are things that you do that make the situation worse, where if you make them feel judged or ashamed of themselves or, or whatever, be too harsh with them, that can push them further away in a situation like that or other situations where it's not in a controlled setting, like you're not negotiating with a, a terrorist or you're not negotiating with a, a CEO for a, a business deal where you're in a, like an enclosed environment where the, you're the, you know, the goal is to negotiate, to get something out of that, to get a solution out of that situation and not as controlled. How do, how do you, coach people to deal with like rejection or that person not giving them exactly what that they want in that situation. There's best chance of success. First of all, you know, empathy is an approach gives you the best chance of success. Now it might be a long shot, might be no shot. You can't make every deal. And the acceptance that you can't make every deal is actually liberating. And, you know, I negotiated for a while before I had something go bad. And then I can remember my, my former boss, Gary Nessner, it was his phrase, best chance of success. And then I said, well, I guess by definition, it means you're not going to make every deal. So as soon as you realize that you can't make every deal, nobody can, it, it's somewhat liberating and it makes it easier to live with the outcome if it doesn't work out. And because of that, you're also more likely to find the best outcome. It's a little bit of the samurai approach. You know, samurais weren't scared of death because they recognized it could happen and they made peace with the fact that it could happen. Consequently, they were less likely to die. So you're not going to make every deal, make peace with that, and that increases the chances that you will make the best deal possible. If you were to add another chapter to your book, I mean, the book has been written out, been written, eight, been, been written what, I think roughly like seven or eight years ago or something like that. Yeah, 2016 was when it came and I'm sure you've learned a lot since then in your personal professional life. If you were to add a chapter today, what would it be? I don't know how much we talked about proof of life and never split the difference. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really critical thing now. And it plays exactly to what I was just talking about, that you're not going to make every deal. In, in business, 
the percentage of times when there is no deal there and people engage in communication for pre-consulting for um, competing bids. I had no idea how common that was in the business world until I got out into it. You know, I thought, you know, they call, they call somebody the rabbit. Your, your job is just run the price down. You're never going to get the deal. The rabbits never gets caught, but your job is to run the price down. I thought that was stupid. Like when I'm in the government, I'm thinking like, nah, they don't do that in the private sector. That that's the dumbest idea I ever heard. It's a waste of time. I'm one of these time is money human beings. I'm like, why would people waste time? Time is money. Why waste money intentionally? And I remember um, uh, reading a book about negotiation. I think it was uh, bare knuckle bargaining might have been the name of it. And the guy's talking about how the, you know the rabbit. And I thought, holy cow, this this really exists. And we start talking about it when we're training and I'm teaching a sales team probably about four years ago, about more than that now, five, six years ago. And the guy says, oh, yeah, that's in this book called The Challenger Sale. That's 20 percent of the time they're using you for free consulting. They're using you for competing bid. And they did a survey of executives and they said, how often are you engaged in a negotiation with the, and you will never give the deal to the other side? Never. It's a complete fool's errand for them. And the executives, they surveyed a thousand of them, admitted to 20% of the time. Now, they didn't overestimate. Like, if you ask somebody, how often do you lie? And they lie 80% of the time. They're going to say, well, we probably lie about 20% of the time. And realizing how huge of a factor that is, and the number can be as high as 80% of the time, depending upon circumstances. So I'd have paid a lot. We'd have put a lot more in about proof of life. Is there a deal? Is the deal with you? How to diagnose that very quickly. And we're teaching people that now. And you don't got to get any better. All you got to do is stop going on fool's errands. And you'll probably increase an immediate 20% pay raise. When it, I know one of the main themes of your book no pun intended, is, is never splitting the difference, right? When it comes to negotiating, when it comes to bargaining. And I, I think that's a, a misconception or it has been for me because when I read that, I was like, wait, like I always thought that if I aim higher in selling something, then maybe they'll meet me in the middle and I'm still above where you know my minimum was or whatever. Talk a bit about why it's a common misconception to split the difference and to sell yourself short when it comes to negotiating for, for money, negotiating um, for a car or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, it, there's always a better deal and the better deal is not made by splitting the difference. Now, as soon as you start giving in, um, Danny Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman, professor Kahneman, Nobel prize winner, 2002 uh, behavioral economics, and the succinct version of it is lost things twice as much as, as an equivalent gain. Prospect theory. So if you give up five, you feel you gave up 10. Lost things twice as much as, as an equivalent gain. So you try to split the difference fair to use the F-bomb. You know, there's a difference of 10 between the two of us. When we split it, we'll both give in five. All right, so let's say it was a genuine split on both sides. You gave five, but because you're human, you feel like you gave 10. So it's a guarantee you just feel you lost. 
relaxed. And consequently, you're not going to really feel even to probably an implementation you've made up your loss. Now, your loss wasn't five as far as you're concerned. Your loss was 10. So through the course of the deal, you're going to get your 10 back. Now, the other side is like, hey, wait a minute. You know, I, I lost and now you're getting me back even more. And it triggers a downward spiral. That's on the assumption of both sides are being very genuine in what they've given, you know, the give, get nonsense in, in, in making deals. You know, what, what am I prepared to give up in order what I, could I get? I mean, that's limited zero-sum game thinking. Now, on the other hand, let's say that you got a minimum or you got a sweet spot that you're trying to get to all along. So let me double what my ask is. Then I'll actually end up on my sweet spot. That's real common really common. So you ended up where you wanted to be all along. You've accepted that you can engage in deceptive behavior to get what you want. And that's okay. There's a little bit of compromise and principles. You know, are you intentionally deceptive? No, I'm a good person. Well, didn't you just kind of lie about what you wanted? Yeah, well, you know, everybody does that. It's a bit of a slippery slope. Now, what happens when the other side realizes that they kind of got bamboozled? You didn't, you didn't give up anything. You just moved the goalpost to get what you wanted all along. That's to put yourself in a position where you're always going to have to hide that from the other side. And the chances of you keeping that concealed forever are slim. So eventually they're going to find out that they got bamboozled. What's that going to do to your long-term relationship? This is all kind of fraught with peril, where if you take a few steps back, you'll actually get to the best deal possible faster, and you don't have all these concerns. You don't have to worry about, is my lying conditional? You don't have to worry about what happens if the other side finds out. You don't have to worry about any of that. You know, you don't ever have to conceal what you did or how you did it from the other side which by definition is how you build a long-term relationship in business or personal life of trust and confidence two ways. So how does somebody, because I mean, it is a slippery slope in both ways. How can somebody like, like what's, what kind of things should they do when they're approaching like any kind of um, negotiation, whether it's personal or professional to make sure that they get the best of both worlds. They get, a fair, fair deal, a fair deal for themselves, where they don't feel any kind of resentment, but they're also not, you know, knowingly trying to take advantage of the other, of the other, of the other party. If you take the time to really hear somebody out now, and, and, and the black, the black swan method, there, you know, there are eight FBI hostage negotiation skills. We get nine skills, very close, a little more uh, specific, and you know, we've evolved them down the road. But a lot of it is just trying to make sure that you hear what the other side's saying to be certain of it and to hear what's motivating them. Now I'm just trying to gather information accurately as to what's really going on by the use of these skills. Not only are you more likely to share with me, but the process of feeling heard is going to make you more open to a different outcome. It's going to make you more open to being persuaded to see something else. So I'm just really my first goal in a negotiation is really get accurate information. If I, if I got any sense as a business person or even in a personal relationship, 
I have to accept that I don't know all there is to know about this interaction, about this potential deal. Nobody does. That's maybe one of the biggest, hardest things for experienced people to accept. You're in the dark about something. And whatever you're in the dark about, it's important. There's never a situation where you as a business person is not holding back extremely important information, your budget, your deadlines, how it affects your bonuses, how it affects your future, the mood your boss is in over the last week, the mood your spouse is in over the last week, whether or not you've been given deadlines internally, whether or not the company's doing any good. There's no shortage of really relevant information that you're holding back. So that also means there's no shortage of relevant information the other side is holding back. Now, the, the, you know, the quantum physics question here is what's in the overlap? And so by definition, you can't know the best outcome walking in. You know, all your, all your exercise on give-gets was all predicated on deeply flawed information, which means your give-gets if you do that nonsense, are all highly inaccurate. So you got to hear the other side out just to test your own information, find out where your mistakes, your flaws are, and hear the other side out in a way that makes them feel good sharing instead of being interrogated. And so that, that's what the approach is really about. Consequently, making a better deal once both sides have been heard out, there's new information on the table, there are new cards on the table, you're both going to end up better off. And I would imagine that's where asking these open-ended questions that you talk about like are really helpful in getting an understanding for like what that other person wants so you can still maintain some sense of control in that negotiation but they're are, they're telling you what they want from you am i correct yeah you know let's use stability instead of control we, you know we want some stability here and you know you and something else that we've really discovered me and my team you know i'm a i'm a collective group my son brandon Previously, the president now out on his own, Derek, Troy, Sandy, you know, I, I got I got a brain trust. The other thing we've learned about the type of questions, which are principally what and how questions, which we didn't know when we wrote the book, each one has its own sort of design. And what do I mean by design? What question is designed principally to uncover obstacles? What's the biggest challenge you face? What keeps you up at night? What happens if we do nothing? You know, what is principally designed to uncover obstacles? How is principally designed to then solve those obstacles? How do you want to move forward? How do you want to deal with this? Like the most famous question in the book at the very beginning, how am I supposed to do that? is really how do we jointly solve the obstacle? How do I solve the obstacle? I need you to take a look at how hard my implementation is here. And I need not only for you to look at it, I need to see your reaction to how hard it is. How am I supposed to do that? Eight out of 10 times is a grand slam home run. Two out of 10 times, you get nothing. The other side throws back at you, you know what? That's your problem. And I've had people say to me, I used, how am I supposed to do that? And it failed. Really? 
What happened? Well, they said that was my problem. I said, no, it didn't fail. What they just did was they told you that they don't care about you. They don't care how much you get hurt. They don't care if you go bankrupt, that you are purely transactional to them. Now, that didn't fail. What it did was it gave you a great snapshot of the person on the other side of the table. So how is an implementation question? And when the other side doesn't care how horrible your implementation or costly is going to be to you, that might be the deal you don't want to make. Right. That might be a telltale sign um, to walk away. I, I think that um, based on what I've learned about your work, and I just think in my own experience of um, negotiating and conflict resolution in general in my life, I think there's so much importance in remaining like grounded and cool, calm, collected, not letting the, your emotions get the best of you in these some of these situations that can easily trigger your emotions. What have been some of your best practices over the years to remain fairly calm, even though you might be incredibly stressed, to, so that way the negotiation can go as smooth as possible? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, remaining grounded is a critical issue and a challenge. So, you know, I got taught as a road skill, the, you know, the late night FM DJ voice. And I would use that to calm the other side down. And point of fact, it also calms me down. Like me intentionally, like if it's gotten out of hand or I want to get angry at you or you've gotten angry at me, you know, I'll go to the late night FM DJ voice to calm you down. Now, there's a, there's a subtle shift. You got to be careful that's not condescending, where you're intentionally talking down to somebody. That's aggravating and inflaming. But if I need to calm me down, I'll, I'll adopt that voice because forcing myself to use that voice also calms me down. So in the heat of the moment, I'll go and do that. Uh, typically, how, how else? Some of the cliches are great helps. And it's a cliche in many cases because it works. I'm in a negotiation several years ago with a person that I knew was uh, lying, doing bait and switch, the type of person that was saying things where what they really meant was different than what I was hearing. And they knew it. And that that's one of the things that really punches my butt. And I can remember I'm doing a mental preparation, which everybody does on purpose. You know, what, what you do is your mental prep is you imagine that person lying to you and you imagine screaming at them, you know, calling them names, telling them what you really think. That's preparation. It's bad preparation. It's still preparation. And I can remember thinking to myself, you know, in point of fact, the reason this person is trying to manipulate me is because we're that good and our training is so valuable. And I'm actually lucky to be in this negotiation because if I wasn't successful and it's a success problem, this wouldn't even be happening at all. So I'm actually lucky to be here. And as soon as I flipped it on its head and found a way to, to, to think of it as a success problem, my thoughts cleared up. I thought of the things that I needed to say. It was in a positive frame of mind and having done the prep that I needed at that point in time, I put it out of my head and it stopped bothering me. So, you know, the old phrase, people say, you know, it's not happening to me, it's happening for me. There's a bunch of sayings out there that are really useful. 
You know, what's the difference between adventure and ordeal? Attitude. You know, I was just talking about uh, Andrew Huberman's podcast. I'm, I'm listening to one of his podcasts the other day where they're talking about stress. And if you tell yourself stress is good, it is. And it makes you smarter. And if you tell yourself stress is bad, it is. And it makes you dumber. You know, so that's just, just taking a different mental perspective on the exact same set of s- stimulus. How do you interpret it is how it impacts you. And speaking of interpretation, um, I think one of the things that everybody gets slightly triggered by, at least, is when they they know that somebody is is lying to them. And I know a lot of times people are, I mean, people are, are good manipulators. So it's like, oh, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, or they're telling me this, but my gut says that. What are some telltale signs that somebody's lying, and or what are some like questions you can you can ask to to actually see if somebody's telling the truth? Yeah, well, that's a great question because the telltale signs are the same of as lying as being backed into a corner. You know, it's what you can refer to as an affect shift, change in tone of voice, change in body language, hesitation. What I would teach you is to use a label. Like if if you if I ask you a direct question where I'm hoping for a yes, which by the way. I would train you to get out of the yes business. But let's say that you went for confirmation yes. The other side went, yes. Now, that tell for a lie is exactly the same as a tell for somebody being backed into a corner. You don't know for sure what it is. That's why we don't teach body language because body language is what do those signs mean? You just saw a tell, but a tell of what? You don't know. So you got to find out. How do you find out? You throw a label on it and you say, seems like something just crossed your mind. Now, I'm not labeling what you said. I'm labeling how you said it. And what's completely neutral and fair either way is some cross your mind because you're lying or you're holding something back or you're troubled. Could be three, four, five things. So anytime my gun instinct picks up potential deception instead of saying like, ha, I need, I need to say something effective. Seems like there's some hesitation. Seems like something just crossed your mind. Seems like there's something else to this. A lot of the deception, which is like stunningly commonplace in the business world is not really predatory. It's really defensive. Nine out of 10 times, it's defensive. You don't know how to tell me the truth. You're trying to figure out how to tell me the truth. How I deal with that is exactly the same way as I would as if it's predatory, like you're trying to take advantage of me. I start labeling what I'm seeing. When something about the way you're saying it is triggering my gut, then I simply just got to throw a label on it as the first move, see if I can tease out what's going on behind your eyes, in between your ears. So asking them like a thought provoking question, instead of being like, you're lying, you're not telling me the truth, which I think tends to happen. Cause I think if, if you say something like that, people are going to be even more defensive. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to back somebody into a corner and you don't want to uh, put them in a position where they got to repeat the lie because then, then they get even, even more dug in on it. You want to throw something out and just sort of an inquiring, gentle way, innocently, uh, downward inflection, however you make it land, 
and then dig into it a little bit more. Have you found that when your gut has told you somebody's lying, that in fact they are lying? Yeah. Yeah. The gut is ridiculously accurate. I mean, I've seen some data and all the neuroscientists to, you know, the brain's processing is speculative at best, but the gut is a supercomputer and your gut's good. Again, like I said before, separating your gut from your amygdala is the challenge, your fear centers. Your gut's really good. You said a few minutes ago that we should get out of the yes business. Uh, Why do you believe that when it comes to negotiation and and conflict? Because so many people have been led down the path and manipulated with the word yes. Would you like to make more money? Would you like to get discounts on everything you buy? Would you like to get your medications at 10% off? You know, would you like to stay in five-star hotels and travel the world for free? You know, some, that, that, that's a classic pitch for, you know, taking training to be a keynote speaker. Would you like to travel the world for free and stay in five-star hotels? Like these obvious yeses. Do you like clean water? Do you believe in freedom? You know, that people are always going someplace with that. And when we were young and innocent and naive, we'd say, yeah. And I don't know anybody that hasn't been flim-flammed with yes. I still got somewhere in my storage boxes a coupon book that cost me $25 that was supposed to give me 5000 in discounts on all the stores around me. I didn't figure out how to use any of those. Would you like to get discounts in all the, your favorite stores? Yeah. Would you like to only have it delivered directly to your door? Yeah. You know, so we've all been hustled by that. And we, everybody's been, is yes battered. And so as soon as somebody starts trying to get us to say yes, like, oh, whoa, what am I letting myself in for? Where's this going? So if you get out of yes as an answer to begin with, you've just completely dodged that entire bullet. You you were not causing uneasiness in somebody because they did get hustled by somebody using yes on them. Now, that doesn't mean you're trying to hustle, but they're like battered children. What happens when you go to hug a battered child? They see another grown-up raising their arms, they're going to flinch. doesn't matter. You want to give them a hug. They've already been battered, and that's the problem with, with yes. Everybody's already been battered by it. So what's a better alternative for somebody to look for? Because I feel like in any type of argument or conflict, all that that person who's on the one side of it is looking for is for that person to kind of give them what they, what they want. Yeah. Or, or, you know, there are enough times that people just want to be understood that making somebody feels understood, the return on investment of your time is always there. Like if all they want is to be understood, all they want is their perspective to be heard. And then, and then they're going to make the deal. Like everybody can think of the boss that never did what they wanted him to do, but always hurt him out. Like you love working for that guy or gal that always hears you out. You march into the boss's office and the direction we're going makes no sense to you. They can either issue the order to get back to work and do what you were told, or they can hear you out and then tell you to get back to work and do what you're told. And the second guy, you'd be like, you know, at least they heard me out. So there's a, enough of the times that the deal is going to come to you if you hear the other side out. 
that it's worth the return on the investment of your time. I think probably easily a third of all deals will make themselves for you if you just hear the other side out. That's a pretty good chunk. Now, what happens to the two-thirds that didn't work on? On the two-thirds that didn't work on, they are now automatically more open because you heard them out. So the worst thing that's going to happen two-thirds of the time, the other side's going to be more open to hearing what you have to say. That's a pretty darn good percentage. And so is the path to hearing them out and then feeling, having them feel understood, go back to what we talked about earlier and asking them like an open-ended like question about their perspective and then like validating that from, from your side to make them feel comfortable. Yeah. That, you know, and both aspects of that sequence are critical. An open-ended question like what or how, you know, what's causing you to feel this way? How do you think this is going to help? Those are only good if you then show that you heard the answer. Like a lot of people will ask the question and then ignore the other side's answer and proceed with their argument, proceed with their value pitch, proceed with whatever their position is. So you're conditioning the other side. You might ask a great question, but you don't listen to any bit of the answer. And however you want to look at validating what they said, repeating it back, paraphrasing it, summarizing it throwing labels on emotions behind it. You know, that that's all about validating where the other side's coming from. The, both of those steps are essential. The validation is essential. Yeah, ask a great question and show them that you heard the answer by trying to repeat it back to them as accurately as you possibly can before you proceed. Because number one, they don't know that you heard them until you show them. And secondly, you might not have heard the whole thing. And so by showing them, you give them a chance to collaborate with you and correct you. Like people hate to be corrected. In point of fact, correction is collaboration. The other side's collaborating with you when they're correcting. And if you can get out of your own way over being, having left something out, being embarrassed, that's so powerful that a lot of times I'll teach you to get corrected on purpose. And how does this all transfer into like personal relationships? Cause I know that like, if you don't manage conflict in like a romantic setting, I mean, chances of your relationship lasting or having a good relationship are like slim to none. Um, do this, do these same tips that we're talking about apply to situations like that? Or have you learned that different approaches work? Yeah. A thousand percent. The same tips absolutely apply. What makes close relationships, whether they're in, intimate um, personal romantic relationships or family relationships, a little more problematic is you've done some inadvertent wounding along the way and you don't even know it. And the same thing has happened with the other side. The, the longer you've been close to somebody, the more likely it is you accidentally wounded them and, and you'd be shocked and, and, and want to make amends if you'd only know. And so that's what really the key for um, uh, close personal relationships is just accept the fact that somewhere along the line, you wounded them and you don't know. And that's probably driving them. And looking for that and recognizing that and then being willing to, uh, you know, genuinely apologize. 
Because if you did it by accident, you should be apologizing. You didn't mean to hurt somebody. You know, you, and don't don't come up with a full apology. I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, that, that, that's, <laughs> that's worth a walk away in, in and of itself. But when you're genuinely collaborating with people and then, and then walk the talk, they're also looking for you to walk the talk. And walk the talk and, and yeah, your relationships will be stronger. Do you feel that with that type of conflict, because there is much more personal emotion involved, that it serves people better to like take some space and walk away while things are a little bit more heated instead of trying to solve that problem right then and there? Or do you think that people should try to solve the problems quickly? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there's some real bad advice out there, like never go to bed angry. Go to bed and get a good night's sleep. Give yourself some distance. Let your brain process it. You know, and, and as you, the phrase you just used, I love, walk it off. Like, I can't remember where I read it, and I'm completely satisfied it's accurate. You think better when you're walking. That's why going for a walk or even going for a drive has a tendency to clear your head. You process better. So both of those things are great ideas. You do not got to stay in the heat of the moment because somebody said to you, don't go to bed angry or we're staying here till we solve this problem. That's all bad advice. Give yourself some space. Thousand percent. I mean, because I think like developing any kind of um, like distance between the two people obviously allows people to calm down, but it also allows people to to process like what just happened and maybe like decide if they've overreacted or if whatever issue they were arguing about was worth the fight, right? And they're able to come back and kind of talk more about it instead of potentially destroying the relationship when things are heated. Agreed. Yeah, agree. I, I agree with you completely. When it comes to dealing with conflict and trying to get some get something out of a negotiation or a relationship, how different is it like online versus offline? Like I know a lot of your work in the past, like in your career as a negotiator was in an offline world. Now the world is so is mostly online. Any any tips on people when they're communi- have, when they're communicating with people um, via email or text to to handle things in a proper way? Yeah, just chunk it down. The my favorite analogy is chess. Like if you're communicating via email, if you're playing chess via email, are you going to put seven moves in one email? No, you're going to put one move in that email. So chunk it down. But people when they communicate, they're like, "I got seven moves here. I'm going to lay them all out in this email." Like if they, if you got sent an email with that much in it, you wouldn't read it. And if you did read it, uh, by the second or third point, you take off on a tangent, ignore the rest of it. And so then understanding the behavior, it's a two-way street. Chunk it down. Put in smaller token portions. Um, the last impression is a lasting impression. And in an email, if you got bad news in the email, don't start out with, hey, I love you, you're a wonderful person, and then deliver the bad news. If you got something that's going to land poorly with the other side and you know it, start out by saying in an email, hey, you know, you're not going to like this. And then take the the greeting, which you wanted to start with, which was genuine, put it at the end. And and the last impression is a lasting impression. So that's the main thing for emails. Make them shorter. Don't catch people off guard in positively. Is there a way to develop or show compassion or empathy for the other person via text or email, any kind of phrases or words you would use? Yeah, well, labels again, seems like this is important to you. I know you've been working really hard on it. 
you know, think of it as recognition or validation, legitimate to start off with, not the kind that only supports your position, but just show some genuine recognition of what people are going through and how it is to them. And you'll be all right. And if you're not able to get in touch with somebody, say somebody's trying to follow up with somebody for, for a business thing and they haven't heard back from them. Do you rec, is there anything you'd recommend to try to get that person to, to actually respond to you? Or do you feel that sometimes it's best just to, to walk away? No. Um, first of all, recognize why what's happening. Um, process for this side's not working. It's not working. Otherwise they'd be in communication. So it's not working for one of two reasons and usually a mixture of both. Number one, you're not listening. If you're not listening to them, why should they communicate with you? Because all you do is pitch. All you do is argue. All you do is give your perspective. All you do is give your value proposition. I'm going to get tired of that real soon. Why would I communicate with you if you're not going to listen to me? So number one, there's, there's, a, there's an issue of whether or not they f- are made to feel that talking with you is valuable in any way, shape, or form. And it won't be valuable if you're not listening. Now, number two, they could have lost influence on their side. Their position has changed. They're embarrassed. They don't want to tell you about it. They can't get it done. But there's no process to move forward on their side because of a lack of ability to get things done on their side. So that's what's going on if they've stopped communicating with you. Probably a mixture of both. The fact that you're not listening is probably the biggest chunk. A nearly flawless way to reset when somebody's ghosting you. One-line text, one-line email. Have you given up on, and then name whatever the project is. They are going to get back to you. In three to five minutes of seeing that communication. Now, if you go back to what caused them to stop talking to you in the first place, you've just blown your one-move reset. There's a saying, the system you're employing is perfectly designed to give you the outcome you've obtained. You do that reset and you go back to your pitch, you are never going to hear from them again. You got to get some empathy in there. You got to get some validation. You got to make them feel heard because you got a one-shot reset. Works just darn near every time. 999 times out of 1,000. It's the highest success rate of any skill that we have. Understand what got you into that in the first place and don't go back to what was happening previously. So are you against the idea that you got to make the best first impression? And if you're trying to like get somebody, for instance, to come on your podcast, or you're trying to book a speaking gig that you should avoid like laying it all out there as far as why they should be interested in, in like connecting with you. All right. So there's, there's a lot of good questions in there. Um, so the last impression is the most important impression. The first impression is the second, probably the third most important impression. Um, a long time ago, I heard from uh, in a Gallup, uh, the Gallup organization that we don't remember things the way they happened. We remember the most intense moment and how it ended. Which then doesn't even necessarily inclu- include the first impression at all, unless the first impression was so bad that it caused it to end. It's bad first impressions that are the biggest problem. When I was learning how to do keynotes and they tell us humor was important. Like if you're not funny, people aren't gonna listen to you. They said your your second best joke is first. Your best joke is last. Because the last impression is the lasting impression. 
you want to make a good first impression, just don't 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 let it be horrible. Now, to get collaboration from somebody, um, some, some I, be generous to start with. Like, do somebody a favor. How can you do them a favor? Every author wants a five star review of their book on Amazon, not a four star review, but a five star review. You know, if you lead with generosity, you trigger my reciprocity really fast. And the people that, if if you approach me by something generous, how you do anything is how you do everything. You, that means you're a generous person. You're approaching everybody with generosity, which means I'm going to be happy to be affiliated with you. Like, they're going to say, you know, you, you know, Chris Voss? Yeah, Chris Voss is a great guy. The first time I talked to him, you know, he bought me a drink. He, you know, he paid for lunch. You know, the, the generosity move makes you a great ambassador for everybody in this world that is succeeding extremely well by that move. And these are the people that you want to be surrounded with. So just don't approach me with your hand out. That's, that's, that's the biggest thing. If you, if you start out with an ask, then you're probably going to turn me off right away. Given that you are now helping so many people with Black Swan and with this new Fireside podcast thing that you're doing, um, which I'd love to talk about, I think to preface that, like, why do you think your your work um, has been so like relatable for the average person? Because I think the vast majority of human beings want to collaborate with other people. And there's a lot of speculation in our, you know, we are the descendants of our prehistoric ancestors and the prehistoric people that succeeded collaborating. You know, my co-author, Tal Raz, contends that human beings are hardwired to collaborate. And those that didn't collaborate died. You know, they went extinct. So the book's about collaboration. And people don't want to be in opposition. People are tired of the vitriol in media and in social media. I mean, even in your echo chambers, you're looking for people that want to collaborate with you. People whose core values align with yours. So I think humanity is hardwired to collaborate and, and the book's about collaboration, which is why it's literally done well in every country on earth. It's in 34, 35 languages, 36, 37 countries. And it's, you know, Chinese talking to Chinese. It ain't Americans talking to Chinese or Chinese talking to Americans. It's Pakistanis with Pakistanis. It's Indians with Indians. Human beings are hardwired to collaborate. And that's why I think the book's done well. Talk a bit about what you're doing now with the podcast. And you have, from what I understand, like people calling in and recording with you live and you're helping with helping them. Like, why are you so, why are you so excited about this? Yeah, this, this fireside thing, it, it's a brand new Web3 application. It's not even fair to call it a social media app. It's, it's Web3. It's, it's an interactive podcast. It's, you can find it in your app store on uh, whether you got an iPhone or, or uh, any other uh, telephone platform. And, you know, there's Fallon Fatemi, who's in business with Mark Cuban. Cuban's a backer of this also. They approached me, and, and, and I thought, this thing sounds cool. Like, I don't know exactly what it is. You know, it's 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 a little it's a little complicated. Every now and then we we run a git uh, glitch in it, but what it really is is interactive group coaching. You know, if you sign up for interactive group coaching, if you sign up for five sessions or four, one a week, an hour at, at a clip, if your company signs up for that, over the course of a month, we're going to charge you twenty five thousand dollars for that for a month, 
Fireside's a thousand dollars for a year. And when I realized that what we were doing was interactive group coaching, I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> I didn't realize we, we, we put this thing out there for that low of a price. And so when, when I did my session, I, I'm on once a, once a month. My other coaches who are actually smarter than me take up the other slots. When I signed on last week, we had somebody come in, call in from uh, Latin America, from Western Europe, because I'm, I'm hearing these different accents. Like, we're all over the globe. And then, then I see this, this one guy's in the dark, completely in the dark. So I go like, dude, are you, you hiding in somebody's basement? What are you, a fugitive? Where are you at? And he says, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm on a mountaintop in Nepal. And I'm like, whoa. And he said, yeah, I'm negotiating with my boss, and I need some hints on this stuff. So it was, it was so fun to have somebody from literally from all over the globe making time to collaborate in their world. And so this, uh, this fireside thing is a lot of fun. And, and I, I love that we're actually connected globally on this platform. That's awesome, man. And, and Chris, I really um, appreciate your time and all the wisdom and insight that you shared. I'll be sure to include the link to the fireside uh, podcast that you were referencing, as well as the link um, to your book and your social media platforms. And I wanted to, again, just thank you. I know you're a busy guy and I appreciate you coming on here. I enjoyed the conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You got it, man. And for those listening, I'm sure y'all enjoyed this conversation. And thank you so much for listening to this. And we will see you next time.